I speak to you in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, the title of my sermon this morning is 15 Minutes of Fame is Not Enough. Now today is the fourth and last Sunday of Advent, and as pretty as the church looks this morning, it's not really Christmas yet. This last time, or last Sunday of Advent is, is a time when we traditionally read the gospel account of the angel Gabriel's annunciation to Mary, telling her that she will have a child by the Holy Spirit. Now, as I was growing up, there were two things that I knew for sure. One was that little girls were not supposed to ask too many questions about where babies came from. And only Catholics talked about Mary. Good Methodists read this story about the angel and the baby once a year, and a week later we read the story of the nativity, but other than that, we never ever talked about her. Mary got her 15 minutes of fame in the last two weeks of December, and then we put her safely away in the nativity set, not to be heard from again until next Christmas. So I was under the distinct impression that Gabriel came to Mary one week and the next week the baby was ready to be born. In between, she and Joseph managed to get married and make the nearly 100-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem on the family donkey. And it seemed to me that there was a whole lot going on that we just never talked about. Now, I know I'm not the only child to have ever had this question because just last week, Miss Chrissy got asked this question during the Sunday school hour. It's really confusing. But then again, what did I know? You know, I knew that it took a lot longer for the babies that my aunts and the neighbors were having to be ready to be born, but maybe since this was God's baby, it could all happen extra fast. It wasn't until my Catholic friends in middle school explained to me about Holy Days of Obligation and the Feast of the Incarnation or the Annunciation that I realized that Jesus, like every human infant, took nine months to arrive. Much later, I learned that the feast date for Christmas was actually set because of the date that was set for the Annunciation. Now, okay, I'm going to go on a little bit of a Christmas rant here, okay, because I think this is important. How many of you have been told that the celebration of Christmas on December 25th was really about Christians trying to take over the Roman holiday of Saturnina and trick pagans into celebrating like Christians, right? Raise your hands, seriously. You're not alone, Okay. It's all stuff and nonsense. There is no evidence for that at all. It was made up as an explanation for Christmas about 175 years ago. Christians did not celebrate Christmas for several hundred years after Christ. But when they did, they settled on a date that had absolutely nothing to do with Roman holidays and everything to do with Good Friday. Here's how that worked. 
There was an ancient Jewish tradition that prophets died on the same day or date that they were born. That way there were no loose ends in the prophet's life. It was called the tradition of the perfect man. Now Christians knew what the date of the crucifixion was. From scripture, they were told that it was Passover, 14 Nisan in the Jewish calendar. So then the next question they had to ask themselves is when did God begin to be incarnate? You know, God was never just a potential human life. God was never just a clump of cells. God was God becoming enfleshed in the womb of his mother. So God entered human existence on the day that Gabriel told Mary she would bear a child. It could not be after that. Because if it were, Jesus would not be fully human and fully God. And if that were not true, we could not be saved. And Christians knew that there had never been a more perfect man than Jesus. So working backwards, the tradition said that that must mean that his crucifixion took place on the same day that he entered human existence on the Feast of the Annunciation. And that date of, of 14 Nisan translated to the 25th of March in the Roman calendar. And so they set the date of the 25th of March for the Feast of the Incarnation or the Feast of the Annunciation. And since everyone knew that it took nine months for a baby to be born, the date for Christmas had to be, if you can tell me, December 25th. That's how we celebrate Christmas in December. End of rant, but I think you guys need to know that. Without a calendar of feast days, little Methodist girls like me were left to wonder if Jesus was more of a miracle than we could even know and if Mary was the only woman ever to experience a one-week pregnancy. It just, it just made the whole story so much more confusing and weird, you know? And it was a shame, really, because in their concern to never do anything at all in any way that allowed for any kind of veneration of Mary, most Protestant traditions limit the, limited the conversation to her um, about her and the exploration of the texts about her to those two weeks right around Christmas and no other time of the year. Somehow, in doing that, we've managed to cut ourselves off from the richness of the tapestry that is these stories, and somehow we managed to make the stories of the birth of the Savior kind of boring and flat. Now, the other challenge that we face, and this is our problem, when we read the scripture is that we don't know the Old Testament as well as our forebearers and the writers of scripture knew it. We cannot hear the allusions and the paraphrases or even the quotations that are sprinkled through the New Testament and give it so much punch and such a deeper meaning. But they did, they knew all those things and they recognized and used all of those allusions in the same way that we use cross-references from movies. I've got a bad feeling about this. 
or the jingles from old commercials. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. It was how they thought. They knew these things and they thought with them. Thus, when we read, we're never quite connected to the way that St. Luke's entire account of his gospel is like a giant tapestry woven out of threads from the Old Testament and threads from the New. And in Mary, those threads meet. From the second sentence of his gospel, all the way through the end of Acts, St. Luke is proclaiming that the Old Covenant has been made new in Christ. And what I want to do with the rest of my time is to show you how these wondrous stories about Mary and Elizabeth and the angel proclaim Luke's message that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, the gospel reading that Fred read this morning starts with Elizabeth. She's Mary's very elderly cousin, and she's five months pregnant. Elizabeth and her son, her husband, Zachariah, had prayed and prayed that God would send them a child, but they had reached old age with no children. They are like Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, who were blessed with Isaac. Or they're like Elkina and Hannah, who were the parents of the prophet Samuel and who after Moses and Elijah was considered the greatest of, of Israel's prophets. All of those couples were past the age for childbearing. And in the scriptures, you can count on it. Any time a story of a miraculous son being born is told, it's always a story of God doing new things in the world, of completely disrupting the order that everybody thought they understood. In this case, it was bringing an entirely new covenant for the people, and John would be the first messenger. Now, Zechariah was a priest in the old temple, a priest of the old covenant. And when the angel of God came to him in the temple and told Zechariah that Elizabeth would bear a son and that son would be filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah had a lot of questions. And as a result of his questions and his doubts, the angel made Zechariah mute and told him he would not be able to speak until after the baby was born. And so, although Elizabeth did conceive, she didn't know anything about what the angel had told Zechariah about this baby. But after five months, and, and my guess is that it took Elizabeth that long to get used to the idea, Elizabeth took herself and her baby bump out to show the neighbors and to praise God for this incredible gift. And she reminds us of Hannah, you know, the one who mothered Samuel, because Sa Hannah, too, brought forth a prophet. Then the gospel reading says in the sixth month, it really ought to say in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, because that's what it was, the angel Gabriel was sent to a town in Galilee. So you see, Luke is careful to keep those two stories together. He wants these two miraculous births to be seen by us as together. It's all, all in the family kind of thing. 
Now, there's so much more that we could unpack from Gabriel's message to Mary, but I, I'm not going to try and do all of that this morning. I do want to point out one thing, though. Now, when the angel told Mary that she would become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and explained to her what was about to happen, unlike Zechariah, Mary did not ask a lot of questions. She said, here I am. May it be done to me according to your word. And as a result, she is able to tell others about the Messiah and to sing that amazing hymn of praise that announces the new covenant for God's people. In believing the message brought by Gabriel, Mary becomes the first believer and she becomes the first apostle. Apostle means the one sent. She is the very first of the apostles, the first one to share the good news of the Messiah with the rest of the world. And then she goes to visit Elizabeth. And she hurries. Elizabeth and Zechariah are told by tradition that they live, or we are told by tradition, lived in En Karim. Now, En Karim is about five miles from Jerusalem, or was. And that's about 80 to 100 miles, depending on the route you take from Nazareth. So that's three, four, maybe five days on foot, which is how she would have traveled. And Mary was young and probably not accompanied by a man. And so this trip is shocking, and it's brave, and it's obviously very, very important. And the text says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. Now remember what the angel had told Zechariah? He had told him that this child would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit recognizes the Son. And the infant John, who is still in utero, preaches his first sermon by leaping for joy. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the good news of Jesus in the only way that he can. Now, don't confuse this leaping with a really big kick. In the book of the prophet of Malachi, the prophet promises that when the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness is always a reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament. When the son of righteousness rises up, those who believe in God's promises, will leap like little calves just released from their pens. Now, if you grew up on a farm, you've seen that happen in the springtime when the calves are finally released from the barn or from their pen and they get to go out to the pasture and there's a whole lot of joyous leaping that goes around. It's not just an ordinary sort of happy. It's true delight. And I think we need to remember that. The verb that's used there is pretty uncommon, and the connection is most likely deliberate. We are meant to think of Malachi, and the joy of the infant John is a joy that we are invited to share. How many of you are going to go into Christmas this year leaping with joy? There's another connection to Malachi, too. 
Malachi says that when the day of the Messiah comes, he will send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And Elijah will turn the hearts of the people back to God. When John the Baptist grows up, he will preach repentance and baptize the people in the Jordan. And the people will proclaim that he is Elijah with all of Elijah's power and authority. And then Elizabeth, too, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she proclaims, blessed are you among women. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord has come to me? She's not just crying out for joy. She is having her own personal Pentecost where the Spirit has filled her and the words of God have come out of her mouth. And it's a confession. I am now in the presence of the Messiah. She is speaking words that come from God, not a standard greeting. And Elizabeth is the first human being, after Mary, to believe that this baby that the young woman bears is, in fact, the Messiah. So she is the second apostle and carries within her the third. Elizabeth is the mother of the new Elijah, a prophet from the old order, proclaiming the Messiah who brings in the new order. And in these three people, two women and a child yet to be born, we find the first three apostles of Christ. Elizabeth also calls Mary the mother of God. Now, that's really hard for those of us who grew up in Protestant traditions. Really hard. It feels like it says way too much, and it makes way too much of Mary, and we know we shouldn't do that. But that name is not really about Mary. It's about Mary's son. If the baby she carries is truly human, who is enfleshed and grows from inside his mother, and the baby is truly divine because it is the logos of God that takes on that flesh, then what else can we call him? The one who grows within her is just not another human baby. And that's what we mean when we call her the mother of God. She is the one who brought the Lord forth into all the mess messiness and difficulty of human life. In Mary, that old covenant meets the new. The covenant that frees us from bondage to sin and death. The covenant that opened the promise of God to Gentiles like us. The covenant that will transform the world. To call her the mother of God is to say that her child is our Savior, our Lord, God himself. And if that isn't true, we are so very lost. Let us celebrate her. Let us celebrate her and praise her for her willingness to serve God so completely. Let us find joy in her role as mother of God. Let us cease to limit her to that annual 15 minutes of fame. But to celebrate the courage and the faithfulness of a young woman who believed in the promises of God and was willing to say, may it be done to me according to your word. Amen.